Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. A few times a year here at WNPR, when I pick up my mail, I'll notice something strange and kind of exciting. An envelope with handwritten lettering on the outside addressed to me. When I open these envelopes, I do it carefully and hopefully. What could be so important or so infuriating for someone to take the time to sit down and pen a letter? I get a little charge every time. Now, it didn't used to be like this, of course. Letters were the way we communicated over long distances all the time, the way we courted long-distance loves and how we let our families know that we were thinking of them. Today, of course, it's a text or a Facebook message. Even a nicely crafted email seems like just too much trouble these days. So today, where we live, a love letter to the letter. We'll hear about a trove of war letters. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I suppose later in the show, I should probably give out our our address in case you actually want to send us a letter. Joining me in the studio is Patrick Scahill. He's WNPR science reporter and host of the Beaker blog. And Patrick's been reporting on a really interesting project, and it got an awful lot of attention online, too, Patrick. Uh, first of all, welcome back to the show. Hi, John. So tell us about this project that you learned about. Sure. Um, so this uh, project uh, involves about 2,600 letters that were found uh, in a chest uh, in a museum uh, over in The Hague in the Netherlands. And this was uh, a chest that had been kind of dormant for, um, well, for centuries, really, and uh, had been sort of mentioned really obliquely in an article written by, I think it was a theater critic in the 1930s. Anyway, a historian over at Yale, uh, Rebecca Arendt, stumbled upon um, that article and said, hey, you know, I, this sounds great. Thousands of letters just hanging out. I got, I got to find this thing. So she goes over to the Netherlands and um, she finds the chest. And we'll talk more about sort of what was in there, um, but I thought it would be fun just to – we have Rebecca actually reading from one of the letters that she found. So I'll just set this up really quickly. Um, most of the letters that were found in this chest were in French, and a lot of them deal with um, theater folks, so musicians, stage actors, things like that. This letter was written by a woman to her husband, and he was actually a, um, a dancing master working in Leiden. And um, the woman was just basically fed up with him. His business was doing really bad. Uh, he kept writing back home. He was uh, to her in France. He was asking her for money all the time. And the letter writer is just kind of like absolutely frustrated with him being a loafer uh, and sort of a no good guy. And she signs off her letter by saying, it is not for you to ask for anything. Enfin, my dear husband, despite all your faults, I am nevertheless, with respect, your very affectionate wife, Jean Le Cloutier. She actually crosses out the word wife. <laughs> so she says, I am your very affectionate wife no longer, and then closes by saying, I wish you better health than that which you intend for me. I am very well disposed. And, and so, I mean, <laughs> I, I love that letter. Um, and one of the really great things that we'll see as we hear from a few more letters uh, that were in this chest is that, um, you know, history obviously is often told from very selective perspectives often from the perspective of elites or, or people in the nobility. This is just everyday stuff. And we'll actually, as we go through here, find that a lot of these letters, I mean, they could be written today with the themes that are in there. And again, the project signed, sealed, and undelivered. Again, yep. so these are letters that are being opened for the first time. And, and I love what you're saying there too, Patrick, is it's not 
something we'll be hearing about later, war letters that help us tell a story about some very specific time. And they're not letters between famous people. They're just like the kind of letters that I talked about at the front, right? The kind that we would write to someone in our family and imagine finding that unopened hundreds of years later. Right. So there's actually about there's about 600 letters that are left in the chest that are unopened. And we'll talk a little bit more about what's going to go on with those uh, later on. But you're right. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of letters here that are just reflective of, of everyday life um, that was going on at the time. And, you know, it's everything from people who are kind of ticked off at their bosses to, to unplanned pregnancies um, to just sort of everyday correspondence between working violinists and bassists uh, from all around Europe. Well, I actually, let's listen to one of our uh, staff members reading another one of these letters. Can, can we listen to that now? I have come to know of the arrival of Monsieur Autin in Paris. I hear that he is seeking to find a position similar to the one he had before in Courland. For myself, I am with a troupe of actors presently in tour, waiting until some better opportunities present themselves. I would have done better to stay with you in Hamburg. I never could have imagined how ill-used I would be by Monsieur Gaillet and how he would trick me. If there might be any opportunities in your area, and if you would let me know about them, you would give me pleasure. He's looking for work, Patrick. He's looking for work, and he's also traveling all over Europe, which is one of the neat things about that. I mean, we see this guy. He's bouncing around everywhere. He's, I mean, this could be a, a jazz player coming out of New Orleans trying to, you know, go around the country to play his music. It's, it's the same thing. It's exactly the same sort of letter. I want to bring into the conversation Jenna D'Ambrosio, who's Thomas F. Peterson Conservatory at MIT Libraries. Uh, she joins us by phone. And Jenna, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Thank you. So how did you become involved in this signed, sealed, and undelivered project? I collaborate with cultural historians and literary scholars on the letter-locking practices of everyday people and famous people like John Donne and um, Elizabeth Stewart. Uh, from The Hague, and two scholars, Dr. Nadina Ackerman and Daniel Starza-Smith, learned about the project through Rebecca and our other colleague, David Vanderlinden, and they they contacted me by email and said, what would you do if we told you there was a trunk of letters that have really never been touched, and they're letter-locked, oh, and 600 have never been opened. <laughs> and so I said, yes, uh, let me know more. Give me, Let me know what's going on here. So that's how I got involved. The letters all look the same clothes. They fit pretty much in the palm of your hand. They're pretty tiny. So I had cautious optimism and thought, okay, let's get over there and see if there, it's just one pattern of folding a piece of paper to become its own envelope. And let's look and see if there's security issues going on built into the letters physically. Um, and so we went over, and it was very exciting to see that even though they look all the same from the outside, on the inside there's all these complicated paper folding techniques that everyday people are doing and also the elite. And all these things are in this trunk, so we're excited to discover it. Talk about these paper folding techniques, this letter locking. This is something that obviously it's a practice we don't have today, right? What we do is we, if we write a letter, which we do about three times a year, which we'll probably talk about later on, we put it inside an envelope and usually, you know, lick the, the, the lip and fold it over, and then we send it off. But these letters are very tightly sort of almost wound together and then sealed with wax. Talk about how long this was actually the practice, Jenna, how, how people did this for such a long time. We think the practice with paper, it, 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 the folding of, of letters with paper begins pretty much, we, we're, we're discovering it's earlier and earlier than the 1400s in Western cultures. 
um, it begins when um, pretty much paper is invented, and it can be it can, it's strong enough to fold and and kind of deal with being stabbed and tugged and and things passing through it to add insecurity. Uh, so I believe it's connected to a technology that that predates paper into papyrus and parchment and back into uh, docu- building in information security back to clay bull. So I'm I'm thinking it's pretty much as a human a human thing that we do is to build uh security into our communications. And uh I think it extends even farther. I mean I think it's happening a lot uh fourteen to the seventeen hundreds. Uh but we see it with uh war correspondence um in the in the during World War II with uh, Russian triangles, folder, uh, folded letters, and prisoner of war stationery. And even into Bitcoin paper wallets today, people print out their wallets, they fold up their code, and they put holograph tape on it. Mm. And so it's we, we see a, a huge surge of it in a certain time period, but we see it extending. And so we're, we study that. In case, yeah, in, in case you you can't quite picture what uh, Jana's talking about, you can go to our, our webpage wmpr.org/slash/where we live, and also on our Facebook page, there's a, a video of our staff opening some of, some letters that Jana sent us, trying to open, uh, trying to open them. <laughs> uh, a, a few, the easier ones to open are actually Patrick, the ones that she described, the triangle folded letters. Yeah. Those are the ones you know, the little triangles you'd make maybe in in home room, and you'd yep. flick them across the room at the cute girl <laughs> and hope that she would get it, not the teacher. It never so, worked for me. It, it never worked for Patrick or I, but. Um, so I, I know, Patrick, they use some techniques to try to figure out a little bit of, about what's inside these letters. Well, uh, Jenna, I wonder if you can maybe just talk a, a bit more about that. I mean, I know for you this was really exciting because you kind of had theories for how these letter, uh, letters were, were folded, but you hadn't actually um, seen some of these series in practice, right? I am scouring archives. Uh, looking, So I've been studying folds and slits, and I'm not focusing on the words and their meanings. I leave that to my my colleagues who, who do that. I've been looking at things people haven't been noticing, like dirty panels, yeah. dirty marks. Um, and those things were telling me that there's built-in document security. And it wasn't, it wasn't until, you know, I started collaborating that I was learning, you know, how, how this is, that the content and the way that we fold stuff are connected. And it's adding a whole new fresh layer of discovery for people who've been studying their letter collections like the Passons or John Donne or, or everyday people, and they haven't thought about that before. That's been really exciting. Yeah. The, the locked model giveaway has been the really amazing tool of engagement to sort of get that information out there because people have to interact with it, and it's a puzzle they have to solve, as my colleagues say. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's a challenge, and so it gets them thinking and it connects them to the past, that it's something that humans do, right? And we, it's not just this past thing that people did in the past and, and it stays there. It's when I ask my family, who are my general public, you know, they're like, why are you studying slits? What are you doing with your life? You know, but when I say, here, open this letter, and now my nieces and nephews want to do it, and scholars want to learn it to connect to their work, they say, oh, my gosh, we can do this today, too. It isn't just something that was done and, and ends in the past. We can pick up a piece of paper. So people are letter writing again, and they're using these really fun historic techniques that have lots of built-in security, too, to sort of connect with each other on a one-to-one basis today like we haven't seen before. We're talking with uh, Jenna D'Ambrosio, who's the Thomas F. Peterson Conservatory at MIT Libraries, about uh, rare letters that have been found recently reported on by Patrick Scahill, who uh, hosts the Beaker blog here at WNPR. How are the letters doing? I mean, these are these are old. We're talking like probably 1690 for some of the earliest ones in there, right? I mean, right. Are, they, are they are they holding up okay? 
Thanks for asking. Right. They're safely housed in the Museum Board Communicatie, and they are in pristine condition. So you you can see the folds, and you can see what I call the sort of subfolds, like radiating creases or impressions. We have a tiny little dove that was hand-drawn, and when we first discovered it as an enclosure, we thought, oh, my gosh, that couldn't possibly be from the time period. And I said, well, let's look at the paper. And sure enough, this, these little hand-cut flames of the, the flames of the Holy Spirit were sort of impressed gently into the paper fiber fibers into that same um, impression. So basically, it's teaching us: let's make sure we don't humidify and flatten these things. Let's make sure we we really look to the this topographical surface for even more clues we didn't even think to look for before. Hmm. I, I want to actually play a little bit more audio. This is uh, another one of the letters read, read aloud because the, the, the folding techniques are so interesting and the little things that we're finding, but also the content is interesting as well. When she is returned, it will be with a suffering soul. As for her, she had no sooner arrived in Paris that she recognized the fault that she had committed, and she felt a sensible displeasure at having left The Hague. At least you may be able to render her justice. You can divine without difficulty the true cause of her despair. I cannot explain in so little space all I ought to tell you. Content yourself with thinking on it, and on returning her to life by procuring her return. She has a passport when she wants it. Have the goodness to do your best. Your negligence is loudly complained of, and one does not know to what it ought to be attributed. Your response on all these matters is hoped for. You are greeted, and myself, I am Monsieur, your very humble and affectionate servant. Uh, so that right there was an, an unsigned note, which was written by a woman in Paris. And it seems, um, from the context there, to detail an unplanned pregnancy. And one of the interesting things that uh, Rebecca Aron over at Yale was telling me about this letter was that um, it actually was marked that the addressee, presumably the father of the child, uh, had refused delivery. And that's one of the interesting things about this um, chest of letters is there's actually a really detailed account book that is in the uh, chest uh, as well. Um, and that's because of uh, the postmaster, uh, Simone de Brienne, who um, was sort of overseeing this whole project, had directed some folks under his uh, um, watch to basically keep track of every single letter, uh, wh- whether or not it was delivered. And um, that's for historians another – I mean, the letters themselves are great, but the logbook is another kind of like really nerdy gold mine for these people. Hey, Jana, and I we, say these people. I mean, yeah. I studied history in grad school, so I'm one of them. <laughs> you're you're um, one of these people. Jana, go ahead. Right, so just two points there. There's, it wasn't just a lone man, a lone guy doing it. There was a postmistress, uh, so yes, his wife, yep. Marie, was also quite involved, and we're going to learn more about that as we delve into this project. The other thing that's exciting is when I hear my colleagues read the letters or they get excited about the content, we can't wait to finally get together in the same room and look at the form and show how they're connected and kind of see if people are using a particular letter-locking format for aesthetics in addition to building insecurity. Mm. I, I just have to ask you, we just have a minute left, Jana. The idea that these letters never made it to their intended recipients, there's something incredibly sad about that in a way. All these stories have a little bit of a sadness. The unopened letter is something that, I, I don't know, has a little bit more melancholy than <laughs> almost anything else you might be able to find. Can you just talk about that and how, how the, the content of these letters, as you have opened them up with your colleagues, has struck you? Right. I think there's just a, a lot of respect in it, that we are the caregivers and the, the helping to share these messages with the world. And uh, we want to treat them as artifacts because they're a witness from that specific historic moment in time. 
And if we alter them, then they lose their voice. They're our witnesses. So we just want to have tremendous respect with, with the way we share them as artifacts or as their voices, as mm-hmm. words, written words. Well, thank you so much for sharing them with us, Janet Ambrosio, Thomas, and, uh, Thomas F. Peterson, conservator at MIT Libraries. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. When we come back, we're going to talk more about letters with Patrick Scahill here uh, from WNPR. We're going to be talking about war letters. We've gotten some tweets from Brendan. says, lawyers wrote letters all the time, but they're generally mean letters. And Nick tweets, I wrote one the other day. It was awesome. You can write us a letter or maybe a tweet at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today on the program, we're talking about the art of the letter, something that many of us seem to have forgotten about. Patrick Scahill, WNPR science reporter and host of the Beaker blog, has recently been writing a lot about letters because of a rare trove of unopened 17th century letters found by by Yale University. And other colleagues like Janet Ambrosio from MIT have been working with these letters. If you'd like to see some of our staff opening these handmade locked letters, go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Of course, one of the most famous types of letters ever gathered is war letters. And Andrew Carroll is director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University. Andrew, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for joining us. Morning. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So how did you get involved in this project in the first place? It's somewhat ironic. I don't come from a military family and actually had no interest in history growing up. My sophomore year of college, our house in Washington, D.C., burned to the ground. And nobody was hurt, which is obviously the most important thing. But everything we had was lost. And for us, the worst part of it uh, was losing all the family letters. And it just kind of inspired this passion for preserving correspondences. And weeks later, a distant cousin of mine heard about the fire, just checked in with us. And he ended up sending me a copy that he had written during World War II, April uh, 21st, 1945, writing to his wife after just walking through the Nazi concentration camp at Buchenwald. Mm. And it was this incredibly graphic and just, you could feel the agony that he was going through describing what he had just seen. And I called Jim back. I said, I really appreciate your you know, sharing this with me. And of course, I'll return it. He said, you know what, just keep it. I probably would have thrown it out anyway. Mm. And I just kept hearing story and story after, like this. And so eventually I launched the project back in 1998, and thanks to Dear Abby, of all people, who wrote a column about this, and it, was, it appeared in newspapers across the country, and literally tens of thousands of war letters from every conflict, from the revolution up to the present day, started pouring in. And I found this uh, wonderful archive at Chapman University and donated the entire collection to them. And, and, but we're still building the collection. We're still looking for letters and now emails from Iraq and Afghanistan. But that's really how it all came about. What are some of the most exciting letters, the the letters that you uh, look at and say, my goodness, this really tells a story of a particular time and place? Just right off the top of my head, I think one of the most extraordinary letters we have, uh, it begins, Dear Sis, it's 9.05 a.m. Sunday morning. The bombs have been falling for an hour now. Um, And you look at the upper right-hand corner, December 7, 1941, USS New Orleans. It was written by a young sailor inside a ship at Pearl Harbor, as the attack was happening. And he describes how he's trapped in the forward engine room of the ship, and he's got nowhere to go. And he finds this pad of paper, and he writes a minute-by-minute account of what it was like to be at Pearl Harbor during the bombing. Now, he wasn't able to send the letter for... He survived, fortunately, uh, and he wasn't able to send the letter for a year because of censorship. But, I mean, this is a... You know, you're in the front row of history experiencing what this young man went through. 
And because we cover all different generations and different conflicts, we have a very similar letter by a young woman who was at ground zero on 9-11. And she was in a building right next to the World Trade Center, and she finally made it to safety after almost being killed when the towers fell. And she wrote this 14-page handwritten letter to her parents, also just like that young sailor, describing moment by moment what it was like to be there. And I, I noticed as I was going, Anna gave us the handwritten original, and I noticed these uh, blur marks. And I called up and I said, you know, was there any kind of water damage? And as soon as I mentioned that, she said, no, those are my tears. Because as she was recalling, and it was very fresh just a few days before, she just started weeping again. And so it's one of the things about letters that makes them so valuable is that, you know, you're, A, you're holding the paper that that person held, and you do have these embellishments or these little uh, things like Jana was talking about as well that, you know, bring to life that this was something written by another human being. And that's what makes it so powerful. Andrew, when you're looking at these letters um, sort of in a more big-picture way, when you kind of pan out a little bit, are, are there common themes that you've identified or emotions that are invested in these letters that particularly you know, resonate with you? That's what's so amazing is how timeless the emotions are, that whether it's a young Continental soldier back in the Revolution talking about almost you know, hand-to-hand combat with redcoats or if it's a Marine writing about going door-to-door in Fallujah you know, in Iraq, the, the 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 language has changed. It's much more informal now, much more conversational. But the emotions don't change. And in fact, I'd sort of forgotten about this because we focus just on American letters. But in just hearing the story, what Janet's been doing with these incredible letters that have been found, um, there was another trove of letters that was found uh, not too long ago, and they're 2,000 years old. They were written by Roman soldiers who were stationed at what you know, became Great Britain, but back then was under Roman control. And what's so funny is um, when you go through these excerpts, the letters that the Romans were writing home, they're complaining about their officers, they're not getting paid enough, there's not <laughs> enough beer, and it's not really that much different from letters you might read from, you know, conflicts a uh, hundred or even several thousand years later. But I can't imagine that the writing style has changed somewhat. I mean, the letters that you're gathering now from the recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan are written by young men and women who have grown up in a very different style of communication. They probably don't write as many formal letters as perhaps were written during the Revolutionary War. Do you see the style of actual writing change? Exactly, and that's what I meant, is the style and the tone is more conversational. But I have to say that um, we have thousands of emails from Iraq and Afghanistan that troops and their families have shared with us. The content is as profound and as powerful and philosophical as any letters that were written previously. That, you know, they may not have the means to send a, a physical letter home, they're sitting there with their computers, but that doesn't mean that what they're writing isn't as significant and in, in some ways really as powerful. And conversely, we have letters dating back to the Revolution, the Civil War, that are very mundane, that are just, you know, dear mom, how's the farm, much love, Bill, that's it. You know, there's, there's not much being said. So it, 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 the... The content and the importance of what's being written is still very is significant. And it's frustrating, actually, because a lot of people say to us, oh, we only have emails, you probably don't want those. But we really do. Anything that these troops are writing, now what's, what's really done, for lack of a better word, damage to the art of letter writing are things like Skype and texting, uh, which a lot of troops do, understandably. They want to see their parents, they want to see their children, whoever it may be. Uh, so we get that desire to kind of look at a, at a screen and see the person you love. What I encourage troops is, like, every once in a while, just sit down and handwrite a letter home about what you're going through. And just as you go through your grandfather's letters from World War II and really treasure and value those, future generations are going to go through your letters and really get a better sense of what you went through as well.
Andrew, I wonder if um, you know you can imagine yourself as a historian fifty or a hundred years out from now, looking back uh, and and trying to parse out what was going on in America and around the world from communication. What are some of the challenges you think historians are going to face in the future when they're going back culling through all this uh, all these digital letters that have been left by people? I think it's going to be just the overwhelming onslaught of correspondence that we have. In the past conflicts, soldiers would maybe at best write one or two letters uh, a day or every couple days, usually like once a week. Now you're getting, you know, 15, 20, 100 emails a day. And so I think for historians to kind of go through that and to really pick out the wheat of the material is going to be a little bit, you know, more difficult for uh, the next generation or generations down the road. But in a way, that's our job is to look through those emails now and to pick out the ones we have. In fact, speaking of Fallujah, we have a Marine who sent us a letter describing the Battle of Fallujah, which was a huge thing several years ago in Iraq. And it's just an incredible description of what he went through and, and what his fellow Marines endured. And so, you know, we try and kind of flag those to make sure that if someone's working on a book on the story of Iraq or whatever it might be, or conflicts in the early part of the century, that we will have already kind of gone through that and, and picked out what we think are sort of the more descriptive and the more elaborate letters and emails. Andrew Carroll's director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University. Andrew, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to Patrick Scahill, who's WNPR science reporter and host of the Beaker blog, where you can read more about letters. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Sean. If you want to write us a letter, it's where we live, 1049 Asylum Street, Hartford, Connecticut, 06105. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Today on our program, American feminist icon Gloria Steinem, who just came out with her first book in more than two decades. It's called My Life on the Road, and it offers a candid account of Steinem's life as a traveler, a writer, and a leader of the women's rights movement. Steinem joined us by phone to talk about the book. Gloria Steinem, welcome back to Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'd like to talk for a, a few minutes about your brand new book called My Life on the Road, which is just coming out now. And it's your first book in about 20 years. Why tell this story about life on the road right now? Because I was living it instead of telling it. I think it was almost 20 years ago when I decided to write this book because I realized that I was writing least about what I was doing most. And then I would work on it every summer for a month and then not work on it for 11 months. So, I mean, in a way, it's, it's better because there's a lot more experience in it, but I got very impatient with myself, as you can imagine. Your life traveling didn't start once you became famous. It, it started very early in your life. Tell us about growing up and about moving from place to place, Ohio, Florida, Michigan, and California, and what it meant to you as you were growing up. Oddly, I didn't realize until I started the book that, of course, perhaps the fact that I was spending more than my half my life on the road was related to growing up in a house trailer as a child, because until the age of 10 or so, uh, my parents and my sister and I had a, summer, a small summer resort in southern Michigan, but for most of the year, we got in our house trailer and traveled to Florida or California with my father making a living by buying and selling antiques to roadside dealers. So, uh, you know, it really is the most familiar thing in a deep childhood sense. I'm sure, much like many other children who grow up moving from place to place, 
you talk about wanting to have a more traditional life, a more traditional childhood with the house that you call home. Is that something that you, you longed for as a kid? Yes, I think especially as a child, you want to be like other kids. So I would see in movies that other kids lived in houses with white picket fences and walked to school. And I thought, oh, I want to do that, too. (laughs) And I never stopped to think that those kids might envy me because I was leading a much more free life. Of course, I never quite learned math or geography except by going state to state but i read all the time so um you know which was kind of what my parents were counting on i think so you know i didn't go to school a full year until i was about 11 or so this of course i'm sure gave you over time an itch to continue to travel um talk about the the formative experiences you had as you were a, a young woman in some of the places that you went i I, I read about a, a formative trip to India, maybe a chance to see places that you never thought that you'd see growing up what What did travel mean once you once you were out on your own and doing some traveling hmm. um, you know it's it's not as if I understood this. At the time, you know, I think we understand one step at a time. I went to India right after I graduated from college and spent two years living there, partly because I had uh, theosophists for a mother and two grandmothers, and so I'd grown up with some sense of India. Also, I'd taken a wonderful course on India in college, also because I was engaged in trying not to get married. You know, so we <laughs> we we do things for for multiple motives, but uh, in all that time, I assumed I would come home and uh, marry and have children and live in one house, you know, like you were supposed to. It's just that I kept putting it off. It took me until, I don't know, almost 50 to realize, wait a minute, this isn't preparing for life, this is my life. What did your travel, especially your travel abroad, teach you about the different ways that, that women live in the world and some of the challenges that they face? Certainly, living in India taught me that many, many, many women in India faced huge physical challenges more than in many other countries. It also taught me about unity among women because there had been a huge women's movement that led to the independence movement, and many of whose tactics were those tactics of nonviolence adopted by Gandhi, as I later learned. So, it both taught me the depths of problems worldwide and also ways of organizing uh, against them. And I know that one thing that you encountered even here in the United States is how, especially in many very religious communities, the idea of the man being the head of the household and having dominion over the wife and the family is something that is it's not Unfortunately, it's not a, an old-fashioned notion. It is a very current notion. It's a notion that, that persists today uh, across America, and, and you don't have to go very far, Gloria Steinem, to, to, to find that, uh, that women aren't necessarily viewed as equals in, in many households. Yes, and I've, I've come to see in a deep way that in a big sense, in a big anthropological sense, that is the purpose of monotheism. I mean, if God looks like man, man is God. And it has racial implications, too. I mean, why does Jesus have blonde hair and blue eyes in the middle of the Middle East? You know, so I think in a big way, 
we have to begin to talk about the politics of religion. Otherwise, those kinds of politics that are so deep are the only ones we don't talk about. Actually, in talking about politics, near the end of your book, you talk about working in politics. And and you tell a story about going to work uh, in Missouri to campaign for Harriet Woods in a U.S. Senate race against John Danforth. And the reason I wanted you to talk about this time is because you lay out a, a very interesting series of impacts that this race and the outcome of this race had, and you draw the, the sort of conclusions that might, um, I suppose, cure someone of the notion that their vote doesn't matter. Can you just tell the story about that race and what you learned from it? Yes, I'm, I'm so glad that you bring that up, because I do think we are told that politics is dirty, our vote doesn't matter, in order to suppress the vote by people who benefit from a low voter turnout, because a low turnout tends to be of whiter, better educated, or richer voters, and older voters, too, not so much younger voters. So I truly learned a lifetime lesson by the race that you cite, because Harriet Woods lost it by less than 1% of the vote due to a huge influx of well-paid ads, negative ads, at the very end. In fact, it was so clearly about money that it became the inspiration for the founding of Emily's List. So, you know, as a result of the election of Danforth to the U.S. Senate, he took with him, as part of his staff, a man named Clarence Thomas, who then was visible in Washington as a very rare black right-wing person and lawyer, right? And so he then was appointed the head of the EEOC and did his best to dismantle the class action abilities of the EEOC, then briefly on the Court of Appeals, and then was present as a possible replacement, an African-American replacement for the great African-American jurist Thurgood Marshall. You now think of everything that resulted from him, arguably from him being on the court, one being the victory of uh, Bush over Gore, thus leading to two wars in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, the privatization of prisons around the country so that now they, many more are run for profit, as was pioneered in, in Texas. Uh, you know, you, you can just go on and on, a denial of climate warming, you know, and you can trace all of that back to just a few votes in the state of Missouri. It's, it's, it's for, like the parable, you know, for want of a nail, the, the shoe was lost, the horse was lost, the battle was lost. And we, we must understand that because the voting booth happens to be the only place in the world that I can think of where the most powerful uh, are no more powerful than the least powerful. And this may be, be too broad a statement, but I, I've looked at the last few years since uh, President Obama was elected and everything that's happened since then is being largely in America a conversation about race in various ways, certainly about immigration in the last year and a half, the many, many issues having to do with police in urban areas and African-Americans. It seems as though this presidential race is shaping up to be one that may be much more about gender. An awful lot of Republican candidates who talk about reproductive rights, Donald Trump, who says some very very unflattering things about women, two women in the race, of course, Hillary Clinton 
in Carly Fiorina. Do you, do you think, Laura Stein, I'm, I'm making too much of the fact that gender might be the big issue of 2016? No, no, I think you're right. I just think we need to always remember that gender and race are intertwined in a way that can't be disentangled because you can't maintain racism without controlling the bodies of women, which is why it's just not possible to be a feminist without being anti-racist, and it's not possible to be successfully anti-racist without being... I mean, it it is just so deeply and and clearly intertwined. And I think you're right about the kind of racialized politics that we have. You know, sometimes I think the right wing is so anti-Obama and so racist that if if they had cancer and he had the cure, they wouldn't accept it. It's deep and it's it's self-defeating, but it is tied up with gender and tied up with gun control and all kinds of other images of, of masculinity. May I ask you, are, are you supporting anyone in the presidential yes, no, race? I will, I will uh, certainly support Hillary Clinton, yes. I think clearly based on not only the fact that she's a woman, which is helpful in a positive way because to walk around all of your life as a female person does give you a different consciousness uh, or may give you a different consciousness, but also because she has more experience than anyone else and she has put forward the, a unique view of foreign policy that understands that the single biggest determinant of whether a country will be violent inside itself or will use military violence against another country is actually has now been demonstrated in a truly great book called Sex and World Peace, which I recommend to everybody by Valerie Hudson and other scholars, has been absolutely proven to to be even more than poverty, even more than access to natural resources, religion, or a degree of democracy. It's violence against females, because that's what people see first, at least in the dominant, dominated uh, masculine, feminine roles, often in violence as well, frequently inside the family, and it normalizes it. It normalizes the whole idea that one group is born to dominate another and can be changed, of course, but it takes a lot of effort to change what we have experienced in the family and in our childhoods. So the idea that violence against females should be a consideration in our foreign policy has been pretty uniquely pioneered by Hillary Clinton. Before I let you go, I should just say, I think when I interviewed you in person when you were at Central Connecticut State University a few years ago, we talked a bit about this issue, and I'm always fascinated by it because of just what you said about the the different consciousness that a female politician like Hillary Clinton may bring to it. There is a sense among many Americans, certainly, that women and men are able to do all of the same things and they are able to approach issues in exactly the same way. But you're saying something very very nuanced and something I've always been fascinated by, which is that having a woman president might very well mean that there's a different foreign policy just because, in part, of her experiences, because of the consciousness she brings as a woman to, to the job of president. Well, you know, it's not only because of her experiences or because she's a woman. For instance, it, now in his later years, uh, former President Jimmy Carter has come to understand this, too. Hmm and has written very movingly about it. So it's, it, it's not about biology. It is about consciousness. And we do have always to remember that there are the Clarence Thomases, the Sarah Palins, 
who look like their group but behave like the other group. (laughs) I think readers, voters recognize that. Certainly Sarah Palin was more supported by white male voters than by female and or people of color voters. Did I get this right, Gloria Steinem, that you were asked by the Treasury to come and talk about which woman should be on the $10 bill? I talked to one of the the women in the Treasury about that. She came to see me and we, we talked about it. What are your thoughts about that? First of all, it's symbolic, as, as we recognize. Secondly, I would opt to replace Andrew Jackson because he was the most destructive towards the original residents and continuing residents of this country, Native Americans. So I would much rather replace him on the $20 <laughs> bill. Symbolically, it would be great, therefore, to have Wilma Mankiller, who was the first elected principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, But because of the era, I thought, you know, why not Sojourner Truth? I mean, she's a great hero of all of our movements, and she is of the same vintage as the the current uh, people on dollar bills. It's a great idea. Gloria Steinem is, of course, a writer and activist and organizer. Her brand new book is called My Life on the Road. Gloria Steinem, great to talk with you once again. Thank you so much for joining us on Where We Live. Thank you so much. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Thanks to our interns, Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. Continue our conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.